In the last months of uh, the last year, 2008, uh, we began to look at the book of Acts. We're not doing it sort of verse by verse at all. Um, uh, We are chronologically doing it. We're not hopping about too much. But essentially, I believe God's got a number of things that we can get for us from these verses, from these chapters. Things that are going to be relevant to us as we go through the year. And so at the beginning of 2009, I was praying and thinking about this first Sunday. I found my attention particularly drawn to this chapter. And I want us to take this week and next week to look at it. This week, we're going to look at the first half. And next week at the second half, which will be particularly uh, relevant with our prayer week. But um, this week, at the beginning of a new year, I want to be conscious of some of the lessons to be learned from the first 22 verses of Acts 4. And obviously I'm not doing the whole thing, but I think there are things there that God has spoken to me about, challenged me to share with you. It's always exciting, it's challenging when you face a new year. We've already had that uh, encouraging word from Kirsty and others about the year ahead, about not looking back and in a sense starting things fresh. I personally feel that for us as a church, it must be a year of action. And I know that that applies to myself and the elders, that there is a sense in which there's a lot of uh, thought and planning and praying, actually, and discussion behind us. But we must act more in the year ahead, not just be uh, too slow or passive in any sense. And honestly, Dave Devonish's word, when he was here, he brought a prophetic word. It challenged me. It honestly, I felt was from God and spoke. When Dave talked about uh, regaining momentum, that uh, we are to have a season of increasing momentum in the year ahead. And he talked about that being started by people taking initiatives. We need new faith ventures uh, and things like that. And I think, without going into that in detail, that's been part of of many things I've been praying and thinking about. But undoubtedly, one of the areas of action must be reaching out to the lost. It must be evangelism. It must be evangelistic action. And I think in this year coming up, 2009, we have more opportunities than perhaps in an ordinary year to do that because there's a structure to it in a way with this very significant J. John uh, mission, April the 22nd through to June the 24th. Ten weeks, every Wednesday evening, J. John will be preaching in the cathedral. We will be the first of the secondary venues. We want to pray to see this building filled every, every week. Uh, there were encouragements and challenges from the carol service, encouraging in the sense that 120 people responded, uh, of which quite a significant number were first-time responses, which I think was very encouraging given the circumstances. It was also had some technical things we needed to put right. There were some things that we learnt out of it, quite a few really, and uh, the challenges of, of some of the sort of logistics and all that sort of thing. But I, I think actually it was exciting and the prospect of filling not only our own venue here, but several others, probably Vineyard uh, and possibly the Baptist Church and Christ Church. They're not all, we're the sort of main one in Vineyard then, where there'll be a web relay of the actual mish, uh, talk of J. John and we'll have more live sort of worship here, and it'll be a different blend from the carol service. But it will be exciting. I really want to pray for people to be saved in large numbers. I mean, I'm not talking about a few dozen. I think I'd like to see it in four figures. To be honest, if 120 people can respond at the carol service, if you just got that every week for 10 weeks, and I think the expectation with every J. John mission is that it grows as it goes on, and that there's a there is quite a a momentum that builds within it itself. Now, they're not all going to be added to this church. We're added to the many churches. We're working together on this. That in itself is a pretty uh, pretty unique thing, really. I don't know if you can say pretty unique. It's not very good English. It's, it's, It's actually very unusual, anyway, that we work together so effectively across such a broad band of churches. I mean, the cathedral is a main player in this. That wouldn't have been true probably five years ago. Um, All sorts of people are involved. Uh, It's a very broad spectrum of churches in Winchester, very broad indeed, almost almost embarrassingly broad. (laughs) You find yourself sitting in planning meetings with Roman Catholics who are actively involved in what's going on and who want to see people saved. It's quite, um, what should we say, it shifts your paradigms a bit 
to sit and fellowship with these brothers and sisters and find that they love the Lord and they're looking for people to respond evangelistically. Because be in no doubt, J. John is an evangelist. This is evangelistic. This isn't sort of, I guess, I don't want to be detrimental, but it's not one of these sort of fuzzy things. It's, it really is evangelism. There really will be reaping. People will be brought forward. There will be resp- the organization of the response and the uh, way we do it is not dissimilar from something like a Billy Graham, where people have packs and they're trained to counsel people and pray with them. It, it has all of that sort of feel to it in some aspects, but more contemporary. So it is pretty exciting to be part of it. And actually, we are main players in it. That has its own demands time-wise. Dave Lockyer and myself are very actively involved in... Actually, Dave goes to two meetings a month. I go to one, if not two, sometimes, for a whole Tuesday morning, planning and preparing. Huge budget. It's a quarter of a million budget, pound budget. It is a big thing. J. John generally sees um, thousands at these meetings. We're anticipating a 4,000 sort of attendance, which is... nearly 2,000 at the cathedral, 800 here, and then spread around other places. And it will make an impact on the city. I'm quite impressed by the team uh, of people there. Some of them I've not met before. There'll be some uh, big names involved in the testimonies and things like that. And when it gets there, it will be quite high, high profile. And I think this comes into a nation which is in turmoil. I mean, we are shaken by what's happening the material financial gods of this world are being shaken. It's very hard for a culture that's made shopping its religion to be experiencing what it is now. I mean, it is its religion. You've only got to look at the size of the big shopping centres built. They're almost cathedral-like, in the, almost overtly so, in the way they build them. And that very god is being rocked the God of finance and materialism. And every, even this weekend, there's more news, isn't there? Maybe there'll be another bank that will need bailing out in our country. There will, the, what we've seen with Woolworths and all the rest of it is only the beginning. We keep, you read it every paper. You do wonder what's going on. It's, it's quite major. I think it is more significant than sometimes when we're involved, say, for example, in an Iraq war, which always seems way over there. This touches us. And uh, I think people are genuinely, genuinely shaken and will be open to the gospel. There is anyway, I believe, a spiritual hunger. I was amazed when we had what was really a bit of an experiment, but I think one we want to build on, had the doors open when the farmer's market was on 14th of December. We estimate about 80 people just came in. And when I, I didn't all stay all the time, but when I was preaching for 10 minutes, whatever it was, 15 minutes, I noticed, speaking from here, that those sitting there having coffee didn't move away. They sat and listened. There was sowing going on. People are open. And we've got to cat seize this time and understand what God's doing and be people who are conscious of that and take opportunities to share the gospel. We have got to gear up for this year and be every one of us more active and assertive, really, in our Christian life and in our outreach. And to help us do that, we're going to be looking at J. John's book, Breaking News, which every church involved in the mission, and it is a broad section of churches, they're all committed to looking at breaking news. This isn't something, oh, what the elders ask us to do. This is part of what all the churches involved in Mission and Just Ten are doing. They're looking at that book, Breaking News, so that we've all got ourselves prepared To some extent, it's not dissimilar from some of the material we looked at once before when it was blow your cover. But actually, in some ways, it's better. We're not doing it. We're doing it in community groups. We're not doing it as one big gathering. We want it to be part of our study program for the next two months or so. We want it to be linked to actually praying and endeavoring to reach out to our friends We're going to try and put a little more space in the church diary to free up a bit of space so that we can be a bit freer to to engage with people. I'll tell you a bit more about that next week, I think. But by and large, we must embrace this thing, this breaking news, this opportunity. We must let it provoke us and encourage us and pick it up enthusiastically, not just as, oh, something to do. Because I believe God is calling us to it. It's only a means to an end. It's not whether we do it you know, exhaustively, but we get the gist from it. We get the provocation from it. We actually do what it's equipping us to do, which is begin to pray for, befriend, and ultimately share the gospel with people around us at work and in our streets and in our families.
So with all of that in mind, let's read these verses now before I say any more. Let's read Acts 4 and verses 1 to 22. The priests and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed. Just need to say, chapter 3, they've seen an incredible healing of a man who was in his 40s, it would seem, and has been crippled from birth. And they've seen an amazing, full-on hit miracle, after which Peter has preached a pretty uh, effective gospel. you find all of that in the chapter before. So what happens is the Sadducees and these authorities come up while Peter's still preaching to the people. Verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John, and because it was evening, they put them in jail until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. So their church has grown now from 3,000 to 5,000. It's just a few weeks since Pentecost. It's only a month or two since Jesus was crucified. Bear all that in mind when we're talking later. And actually, it's the preaching of the message as much as the miracle that brings salvation. You need the miracles. We need signs and wonders. But in the end, people also need to hear the truth about Jesus. That's what they respond to. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there, and so was Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they, heard, when they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. Lots of little things interest me. I almost want to give them away sometimes, by the way, to instruct you. Liberal scholars often look at that and say, ha, 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 how could they know what was said in the Sanhedrin? Because they had been ordered out in those verses 16 and 17. But of course, what you need to realize is that although the Sanhedrin at this stage was a very antagonistic group, there were members of that group who were going to be saved. And there's one outstanding person who was possibly part of that Sanhedrin, a man called Saul of Tarsus. And certainly his own uh, mentors and teachers were. And within a few months and years, key players in that uh, particular event were to be saved, amazingly enough. And they would have recorded what happened and they would have given their sort of personal recollections to Luke, who was a close friend of Saul. So that's how they know what went on, because later on, others were going to be saved. But it is a very exciting incident early on in the history of the church. And I want to look at three things briefly this morning. I want to talk about resurrection. I want to talk about salvation. And I want to talk about intimidation. Resurrection, salvation and intimidation. So first of all, let's think about resurrection. Now, 
the resurrection of Jesus Christ, his physical rising from the dead, that is a key part of the gospel in Acts. Just looking at this chapter alone, Acts 4, you will find they repeatedly are talking about it. Look at verse 2. I think they're all going to go up on the screen. They were, Acts 4 verse 2, they were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Look at verse 10. Then know this, says Peter, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Then look at verse 33, which we haven't yet read, but it's part of the same chapter. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. Now, sometimes today, even in our own circles, let alone the broader church circles, the resurrection doesn't feature as much as it seemed to in the preaching and teaching of the early church. Actually, when you read through Acts, they talk as much about the resurrection as they do about the crucifixion. And although I would never want to belittle the crucifixion, perish the thought, we can sometimes be very, very obsessive about it, certainly in the broader spectrum of church. You know, we can have whole um, films like The Passion of the Christ, which, which linger on the agonies of it all. I'm not saying it's a bad film, because it isn't. But generally, in church history, there's an awful lot of lingering on the suffering of Christ. But what's interesting in Acts is they don't actually talk about the suffering of Christ. They know he was crucified. They're talking about him as being alive. They talk about the resurrection a lot. And I think we need to learn from them. Because the physical resurrection of Jesus is not merely some happy ending tacked onto the story of Jesus. It is the key to everything in the gospel. Without the resurrection, there is no gospel. Now, the resurrection opens the way for a totally new world. Be in no doubt whatsoever, the resurrection changed everything. It starts the final era of world history. It sows the seeds or brings the first fruits of the age to come. The resurrection opens up tastes of an age yet to come. Not only in Jesus, but in what we get into through the resurrection. The world is not the same as it was before the death and resurrection of Jesus. Leslie Newbegin says this, The resurrection cannot be accommodated in any way of understanding the world except one of which it is the starting point. You can only understand the resurrection when you see that it is the starting point of something completely new. The resurrection opens the door to the power of the Holy Spirit coming on every believer, male and female, rich and poor, Gentile and Jew, slave and free. You can be filled with the Spirit in a way beyond the dreams of people like Moses and David because of the resurrection. Isn't that incredible? I trust you think it's incredible. Don't you think it's good that you can be filled with the Holy Spirit? It's an amazing thing that comes through the resurrection. The resurrection raises the real expectation of miracles, like the one that's been seen already. This, this man has been healed. Now, those miracles are real and potential because Jesus has changed something. The dimensions have changed. The dimensions of the universe have changed. The age to come has begun to break in. And there are tastes of it. And Jesus has somehow multiplied himself so that he who could heal has passed on something through his Holy Spirit. There can be healings today. Can't there? Ray, we're still praying for you. There can be miracles. The potential is there. It's not just a fanciful thing. The signs and wonders are available because of the resurrection. The resurrection speaks of victory over sin and Satan and death. Death's sting is gone. Death is just the doorway straight into the presence of God. Absent from the body, present with the Lord. Hallelujah. That does not seem to have been the situation prior to the resurrection. As best we can understand the few glimpses we get in the Old Testament. The resurrection has changed that. But it's changed it in a sense now. Victory over sin and Satan. The devil does not have to rule and win in your life. 
Because you're a new creation in Christ. The resurrection has changed it all. It has made it possible for you and I to have a new heart and a new spirit and to be born again and for the Holy Spirit to change you from the inside. That was not possible before the death and resurrection of Jesus. No one of these guys were excited about the resurrection. Jesus' resurrection is, listen to this, a fact of history. The Bible is about facts in many ways. It's got lots of other things in it. But it is not a book of myths and legends. This is a fact of history. The resurrection is a fact of history. And actually, in this chapter, two major proofs stare us right in the face. And I'm going to take a few minutes. If I'm a bit longer this morning, please forget it. Because you need to hear what God's going to say this morning. I want to get to the last point, and I don't want to rush any other point. Right, there are two facts that stare you in the face about the resurrection right here in this chapter. Here is one of them. The change in Peter and John. It is remarkable. The Sanhedrin they are standing before are 71 men. 71 of the most powerful and influential men in Israel. These are the movers and shakers. They're 70 plus the high priest. That's why they're 71. These are very powerful men. I don't know what an equivalent would be. You'd have to think of meeting high court judges, bishops, government ministers. Meeting a, a, a gathering of 70. That's bad enough. But on top of that, these are the men who tried and crucified Jesus a couple of months earlier. It's the same group, the same characters. That is pretty scary. And they are meeting 70. That's a lot. I don't know how many it is. It's a lot. Half of the bottom of this. And they are all very powerful men, very intelligent. They are men with a good relationship with the Romans. Despite their huffing and puffing, they're pretty in league with the power of the Romans. They can do what they want to do. They are powerful men, intellectual men, wealthy men, educated men. Now, Peter and John's courage is remarkable. You can take it for granted, but listen, you haven't got the time this morning. You go back and read what happened when Jesus was arrested. Read about Peter in Luke chapter 22. Peter hasn't the guts to say he follows Jesus to a little girl, servant girl. He starts swearing, I don't know Jesus, I don't know who you're talking about. And he says the same to the most innocuous people. Why is he suddenly able to look these 70 guys in the face and seemingly, I think, point his finger at them and say, you crucified him, and God raised him from the dead. I mean, it is pretty remarkable. We're talking months. We're not talking years. We may only be talking, I don't know, a couple of months. John himself, possibly, was the disciple who ran away naked when they was, tried to arrest a young disciple with Jesus. It's one of the little incidents you read about. And it's thought, traditionally, to be John, who was young, and he, he got out of his clothes and ran away when they tried to arrest him. That wasn't very brave or very dignified, was it? But he's standing there now, alongside Peter, brave and bold. What has changed these guys? They have met the risen Jesus. They know Jesus is alive. They've talked to him. They've spent hours listening to him teaching, the risen Jesus teaching. They've touched him. They've eaten meals with him. They know Jesus is alive. And out of that, they have been filled with the Spirit. They have been filled with the Holy Spirit as a result of the resurrection. Peter and John know Jesus is alive. But here's the other argument, and I think this is a very powerful argument for the resurrection. Bear with me as I explain it to you. So there's the change in Peter and John, but there's the behaviour of the Sanhedrin. Remember, these 70 men, at this time, 71, are very hostile to the doctrine of the resurrection. They're very hostile indeed. Did you notice verse 2? They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Now, the majority on this ruling body, the majority were, were Sadducees in terms of their religious viewpoint. Sadducees were actually a minority, but they were a majority amongst the ruling class which is very similar to modern Britain. You'll see why in a moment. Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. 
They did not believe in anybody having a resurrection. They didn't believe there was a life after death. They did not believe in a personal Messiah. They thought that Messiah, the, the Old Testament scriptures would be interpreted just by Israel coming of age and they actually were quite into the fact that it was happening then. They did not believe in a heavenly state of the age to come. They were thoroughly modern. Modern people, 2009, celebrating atheism, Darwin's anniversary, all the rest, we'll get loads of it all year, think we're very, very clever today. This is 2,000 years ago. These guys were very strong intellectuals. They were materialists, essentially, and they were probably very rationalistic. They didn't believe, that's, now that is the majority of these 70. They don't believe in any sort of resurrection. Now the ones who might, and I, the reason I draw a parallel is that the ruling classes in our society are similarly biased against belief in God and the Bible. These Sadducees did not really represent the general opinion of Israelites, but they were the majority on this ruling body. That's how Satan works. Often it's how he works in our nation. So often the media and the power is in the hands of people who who think they've got it all sus. They've got it all rationalistic, materialistic. This is all nonsense. Right, that's the situation. Now those who were there who didn't agree with the Sadducees, there were some, they personally would have hated the idea that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. They would have hated the idea that Jesus had risen from the dead. They might believe in a resurrection. They certainly didn't want one from Jesus. Just look at verse 17. They can hardly, well, they can't even use his name. We need to stop them spreading any further among the people. We must mourn these men to no longer speak to anyone in this name. They don't want to hear Jesus raised from the dead. They're not at all sympathetic. Remember, keep remembering this. This is very exciting. They are the most powerful men in the land. Don't play it down. Play it up. They are powerful. They got Jesus crucified. They can ask the Romans for help. They can do what they like within those Roman limits. But the Romans are a pagan power and would generally work with them to bring any suppression of anything that might be seen as restless. The Romans aren't going to be particularly thrilled at what's going on with this healing, funny little cult getting all excited. So the Romans and these men would have every interest in keeping this suppressed. Yet, they know, and I've got to keep telling you more, they know that these guys are so excited that Jesus is alive. That's what they pick them up for in verse 2. And right in their presence, Peter and John have the gall, have the guts, have the cheek, whatever word we use, to say, you crucified him, but God raised him from the dead. Verse 10. They look around at these 70 and say, God raised him from the dead. Okay? Get the picture big in your mind. They want to rubbish this lot. They want to discredit them. That's very clear from verse 17 and other verses. So, here is a huge question. Why didn't they go for the resurrection issue? Why didn't these 70 guys just rip into the resurrection? I mean, most of them didn't believe anybody could rise from the dead. Why didn't they just say, right, you Wallace, real show you, get that body of that miserable Galilean out here and let's parade it in the road. He only died two months ago. Get his rotting corpse out. Why didn't they do that? Why didn't they say, look, you wallies, what are you talking about? Get it out here. Let's make an end to this stupid, the most logical and obvious, and indeed I would have thought they think they would have liked to do, is to totally rip that to shreds. This isn't ancient history. This is months earlier. They could have gathered together some of the soldiers and said, look, we've got to sort this out and we've got to make a story up. Why didn't they go for the credibility of the resurrection? Why didn't they produce the body of Jesus? Their silence on the resurrection issue is very, very telling. Never miss that. Why didn't they just expose the resurrection of Jesus as a fallacy? A clear, sustainable evidence, bring forward, I'm sorry, clear, sustainable evidence to show that Jesus was dead and buried. Why didn't they do that? Because they couldn't do that, because he wasn't dead and buried. These, that, that's the fact. Jesus, let it sink in to your modern, dull 2009 heads. Jesus was not dead and buried. 
They could rubbish the men's words, but they couldn't grasp anything to rubbish what they were doing. In fact, the evidence was the other way. Circumstantial but powerful evidence. Men like this cripple being healed. People like Peter and John standing faced by these 70 men and sort of shouting in their faces, Jesus is alive, you crucified him, God raised him from the dead. Now they couldn't rubbish that. They didn't like it. They told them not to say it, but they couldn't do the most obvious, simple thing of saying, you are idiots, look. They didn't, because they couldn't. Doesn't that send a tingle down your spine? Do you not realise, you lot, that Jesus is alive today? Jesus is not dead and buried. He's not a myth. He came alive and he rules today. Your saviour is alive. You want to start in 2009 with that right in the centre of your heart. Jesus is alive and everything has changed because Jesus is alive. Your past can change. All your sins are forgiven because he's been raised from the dead. You, your present can change. You can be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's one of the things that happens because of the resurrection. You can fuss about what terminology I use. Oh dear, John, what should we call this? I don't care what you call it. Make sure you're filled with the Spirit. And I don't think we always realise we can be and should be. Go on. It's there. Jesus is raised. He's poured out the Holy Spirit. It's for his followers to be filled with the Spirit. Our future can change. We're not going to go into a godless eternity. We're not going to end up nothing. It's just flicked out like a a dead uh, ant or something. We are going to live forever with him. We're going to be absent from the body, present with the Lord. Some of us may be alive to be changed in an instant and meet with him. I assure you, we will be with him. We will meet him because he is alive. Read 1 Corinthians 15. He's the first fruits and we are going to follow through. Isn't that something good to go into the new year with? Need a confidence in your spirit. Jesus is alive. Now let's think of salvation. I would say Acts 4 verse 12 would be my verse for the year, if you like, or beginning of the year. Salvation is found in no one else For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. That verse is a verse for 2009. I want you to have it in your heart. It is a significant, absolute, strong statement made by the Apostles Peter and John right in the face of these unbelieving men. I think it's Philip Greenslade who said this. I, I read it somewhere. I think it was his book. The biggest challenge facing the church in the 21st century is remaining true to the uniqueness and exclusivity of Jesus. The biggest challenge facing us in the 21st century is to remain true to the uniqueness and exclusivity of Jesus. He goes on, this means holding fast to Jesus' own claim that he is the only way to God. Now, that doesn't sit comfortable in modern Britain, does it? Blow modern Britain, that's truth. It's never sat comfortable. It didn't sit comfortable here. You don't think he's 70 went, oh, well spoken. Excellent. Jolly good word, Peter. How uplifting. These guys, Peter's not saying it to an audience that are going to be sympathetic. Not like I am. You're sympathetic to this. It's absolute truth. Now, in our postmodern, pluralistic age, people react very negatively to things like this. We've got to be firm on it. They react. They don't like you to say there's no other name than Jesus that you can call on for salvation. But you need to know this. We need to remind ourselves of this. This is not something the church decided. This is the specific teaching of Jesus Christ himself. Look at John 14 and verse 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's not something the church worked out, you know, I don't know, Da Vinci Code type thing, all this mysterious church did all these horrible things. Jesus taught it. And the disciples believed it. Peter and John understood it and taught it and so will we. Now, here's an interesting thing, because it's not a negative in the end. It's a very positive, very positive. 
you need to understand that the uniqueness of Jesus is the only way in which salvation can be available to the whole world. Every tribe, race, nation and tongue. Because Jesus is not like another religious teacher. What he did was for all nations. He is the representative man. He, he represents men and women. He re- he's like a second Adam. The Bible teaches that. A second man. He was unique. God man. We remembered that over Christmas with many, many different ways. The virgin birth, etc. But we were emphasizing he was the incarnate God. God man. There was no one like him. So only Jesus can solve the real problem that every human being has of disconnection with God and of sin. Now, that sin manifests itself in a million different ways in a thousand different cultures. But the solution is only in and through Jesus Christ. And so it's only by being exclusive to him that the whole thing can be inclusive to all. It isn't culturally bound. He bore our sins on his body on the cross. We already, we here this morning who trust in that, are a massive gap away from Peter and John culturally. Think of the cultural gap between us and these men preaching it right here to the Sanhedrin. It's pretty massive. This isn't just a Western thing. This isn't just a religion. This is the truth for the whole world and for every culture. That salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Do you believe that? I believe that. It's important that we hold it very clear as we go into this year. Because we can be open-minded on many things. And often the church is too often legalistic and hidebound. We can be open-minded. But we cannot be open-minded on this. How you're saved from sin and how you're reconciled to God. It is only through Jesus Christ. No other religious teacher died for your sins or can die for your sins. No other religious teacher came to earth as God incarnate, God's only son. No other religious teacher rose from the dead. Very, very important. So our focus is on Jesus, who is the only way. It's a magnificent verse. Our salvation is not in ourselves. Human beings can destroy themselves, but they can't save themselves. Individuals can destroy themselves, but they can't save themselves. Salvation is found in only one way, through Jesus Christ. Only one name. Now, this name is given, it says. Given by God. It's given. It's a grace thing. You can't earn it. There's a givenness of it. God gave his son. There's a given name. It's a grace thing. Appointed by God. You can accept it or reject it. You can't alter it. You can accept this name given. You can reject it, so I'm not interested. But you can't alter it and say, I would like some compromise here. I'd like to fiddle about with it and think Jesus is quite nice here, but I quite like Buddha there and I like to mix it all together. You can't do it. You accept it or reject it. You can't alter it. It's a given thing by the grace of God. Now, All through history, the questions have risen. What if people never hear about Jesus Christ? That's not a new problem. Everybody asks that question through history. It's not, oh, modern people have suddenly thought of that. And actually, when I was preparing this, I was reading and enjoying Matthew Henry's commentary. Who's got a commentary by Matthew Henry? About, oh no, a couple of you. No, a couple of dozen of you. You have got a precious treasure if you've got Matthew Henry's commentary. It was first published in 1708. 300 years ago, last year. And Whitfield read it all through four times, literally on his knees. And he said he blessed God for the wonderful Matthew Henry. C.H. Spurgeon said that every minister should read Matthew Henry's commentary through entirely and carefully at least once in their life. Now, Matthew Henry on this verse doesn't avoid at least a reference to that fact of, well, what if people haven't heard? Let me just read you. Actually, it's going to be on the screen, I think, because it can be a bit long if it's not read for you. You can read it as I read it. This is what he says. Simple, and I believe it and agree with it. We must be saved by his name, and we cannot be saved by any other. How far those may find favour with God who have not the knowledge of Christ, yet live up to the light they have, it is not our business to determine. Whatever saving favour such may receive, 
It is upon the account of Christ and for his sake only, so that still there is no salvation in any other. Just leave it up for a moment because it's a bit wordy. But listen, the point, and I agree with it, if you want to know my answer, is this. It is possible that people find saving favour, as he puts it, who haven't heard about Jesus Christ. Now, I don't know what light they live up to. Only God knows that. I personally would say that I have always believed that a key fact with any human being having doing business with God is repentance. That they acknowledge that they are a failure and a sinful. They acknowledge that they need to get right with a creator, rather like perhaps the thief on the cross, that there's a sort of crying out to God for help. But I would say with great confidence, if there is saving favour for anybody, and there may be, who hasn't actually heard about Jesus, they will only ever receive that on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done. The only grounds for salvation are Jesus. If someone cries out for repentance and God, they find saving favour, it will only ever be because of what Jesus did. A, a very, in my opinion, weighty argument for that is the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, Old Testament people of God were saved to a degree, were, had their sins forgiven. But the blood of an animal would never do that. They did it in ignorance, but in obedience to the light they had, they were looking for God's forgiveness. And it was anticipating the Lamb of God. It was anticipating the only person who could really do anything qualitative for your sin is Jesus Christ. No animal sacrifice can do it. Nothing else in the world can solve the sin problem except Jesus. Now, it is far more important people hear about Jesus because the Bible tells us that faith comes through hearing the word. We don't know what happens to people who don't know about Jesus. We leave them in the hands of God. It's not our business, as Matthew Henry says, fundamentally. We can have a few intellectual opinions. But in the end, faith really comes by hearing the word, doesn't it? How do they hear if nobody preaches to them? How are people going to know this wonderful good news if we don't tell them about Jesus? Well, you know the answer. They're not going to, are they? Essentially, that is how we have to live. Essentially, that's what we know and what we have to do something about. If we don't tell them, who will tell them? Who can tell them? And that is a fundamental fact for the church, for every believer, that we have a command, a commission, a challenge that we have got precious good news for every human being and we must be prepared to share it because we have no confidence they will come into the good of it unless they hear that good news. As we go into this year, I want us to really be on the front foot to share our faith in whatever way we can with those around us, both in, in our own sort of circles and beyond, when we, even strangers. Let's finish up, though, by moving on to intimidation. And I felt to speak a little bit about this, although originally when I was preparing, I thought I'd just do the first two points. But I actually felt that this is quite an important one to finish on, this third one. Because I think it's quite an instructive passage about particularly fear of man. Now, that's what I'm thinking about, being intimidated by fear of other people. Let's just get this very clear. This Sanhedrin were a pretty scary lot. 71 most influential men in Israel, top of the social pecking order, had all the power cards in their hands. They could use their links with the Romans. They had their own soldiers anyway, as we can see from verse 1. They were politically, intellectually, socially at the top of the pile. They saw Peter and John, and this is the first point. I don't want you to miss this. They saw them as unschooled, ordinary men. That's the, verse used, uh, the phrase used in verse 13. Now, we need just to get the weight of that a little bit for a moment. Unschooled means this. It doesn't mean they were uneducated. It means that they were not trained in the rabbinical schools that these men have been trained in. That they lacked what we might call theological training or a university education. Now, that is a specific meaning of that term. These guys are not well educated. They would be able to read and write. I think most Jewish uh, boys from that background, they'd have been instructed in the law, but they were not educated properly in these men's opinion. They also saw them as ordinary, and that is a very interesting word. Ordinary. They're very ordinary people. Now, 
The Greek word that that's translated as ordinary is the word idiotes, from which we get the word idiots. Now, it's not quite as nasty as we use it, but the dictionary definition, the Greek dictionary definition of idiotes is this. One devoid of special knowledge or gifts, a very plain person. One devoid of special knowledge or gifts, a very plain person. So Peter and John were rated as being uneducated idiotes. Very ordinary, plain, unspecial, not very cool, not very impressive men. Are you comfortable to be in that company? I'm asking you seriously. Because you've got to be prepared to be comfortable, to be thought plain, ordinary, not very clever, not very educated, haven't quite got, got it up here. Because you believe in God and Jesus and you think that, you know, God made things. Oh, <laughs> clever boy. You know, and you don't really quite fit in, do you? I tell you, in modern Winchester, in modern Britain, that can be hard. You've got to be ready for it. It's not cool to be a Christian. No, sometimes it is. But it's not. It's not. It's not a real Christian. It's not fashionable. It's not impressive. It doesn't matter what age group you're in. It doesn't really tick the boxes in modern Britain to be a real, full-on, Bible-believing, supernatural-believing, born-again, filled with the Holy Spirit, yeah, God heals, yeah, Jesus saves, I'm going to heaven, type Christian. Jesus is alive, oh yeah, he raised from the dead. Hmm? Now, you've got to accept, you will be seen as unschooled and ordinary. That's rather plain, not very gifted, a <laughs> little bit. Now, you're in quite good company, because in John 17, they said something very similar about Jesus Christ himself. They didn't actually say the ordinary bit, I think. But they said he was unschooled. They said, how does this bloke have this authority? He's not educated properly. You can read it for yourself. They said it in John 7. It really does go with the territory. We must be prepared not to be frightened about being thought to be stupid, unfashionable, lacking social skills, not very clever, and a bit, ugh, you know... Not very special. Afraid of what people think about us. Fearing their scorn. Fearing their laughter. Fearing their anger. Fearing their rejection. Their contempt. Those are real issues for us. Now, I would say they're very real for us. I want to quickly say that Peter and John had the real threat of physical danger. They were seriously likely to be hurt. And on a later occasion, they were beaten and imprisoned. But how is it that Peter and John not only put up with this scorn and intimidate that sort of attitude, but also the physical intimidation of these 70 who could honestly, well, they could have them killed because they'd had Jesus killed a few months earlier. How is it that they are not cowered by that fear of man? How is it they're not shut up and pacified because they're afraid of people? and what people will think, and what people might do. I would argue, and this isn't another sermon, it's very brief, but I'm going to put the three things up together. I would argue there are three things in this chapter, so don't think, just get the points. I just want to mention them. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, verse 8. They had been with Jesus, verse 13, and they were determined to obey God. I'd like that screen left up for a few minutes. Thank you. I think... This was why they were not cowed by fear of man in whatever way. They were filled with the Holy Spirit, they'd been with Jesus, and they were determined to obey God. Now, we don't live with much physical intimidation, thank God. I don't want that. We don't live with the threat of being beaten up, thrown into prison, or even executed for our faith. But in modern Britain, in modern Winchester, even in the modern church, even in this church, we can live with intimidation of other people. We can live with fear of what other people think of us. We can live with a, de a desire not to be thought stupid, not to be thought not very bit plain, a bit ordinary. Remember the words? Ordinary, idiotes, thought of as being a bit of an idiotes. There is a real danger that that can impinge on us, cower us, and keep us quiet. And if we are going to not be like that, whether it's sharing our faith with our fellow believers, whether it's bringing words in worship, whether it's breaking out of the ordinariness of our lives, of our spiritual lives, if we're not going to be cowed, then we need to ensure we are filled with the Holy Spirit. 
That's the first thing. That clearly is true of Peter. Verse 8. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. You cannot be, you are not able to overcome what I believe in modern Britain, and even in modern Winchester, if I'm honest, is quite a major hurdle of being thought a bit of an idiotes and unschooled. You're not able to do that if you're not filled with the Spirit. You fill with the Spirit and you begin to not care. Honestly. But you have to go on being filled with the Spirit. I know. You do leak. I know that when I am most at my best idiotes frame of mind, it's when I'm filled with the Spirit. And I want to be an idiotes for Jesus. And I use the Greek word deliberately because I don't just want to be stupid. I want to be an idiotes. That it's, 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 it's just, uh, okay, I'm not specially gifted, but I'm plain and ordinary, but I love Jesus. And that's what I think we've got to be, filled with the Spirit. Go on being filled with the Spirit. We need to be with Jesus. How do you do that? So it was all right for them. Well, maybe it was all right for them, but the challenges were bigger than you have too as well. Actually, you can be with Jesus. Basically, Jesus is alive and he wants you to spend time with him. So you can be with Jesus. Jesus has already gone back to heaven at this point, so they're not actually physically seeing him now. But they had been with Jesus. That's what the thing that, that really carried the weight. How do we spend time with Jesus? You talk to him. You pray, you chat to him. Is Jesus your friend? Do you personally, every last one of you, young, old, male, female, do you spend time with Jesus? Praise God, Andrew. Well done. And yes, I mean that. We all need to spend time with Jesus. You will not get through this year if you aren't with Jesus. It's not about rules. It's about relationships. You need to spend time with Jesus. And you won't even be able to properly calibrate your own sort of life or what you're concerned about unless you come out of time with Jesus. That's what you need to do. You need to pray. You need to meditate on the word. I'm not just giving you a heavy thing about reading it. You know what you've got to do. You've got to talk to him. You've got to live with him. You've got to talk to him in the car, talk to him at work. You spend time with Jesus. And then thirdly... They were determined to obey God rather than men. And that was a big call for them, which they clearly enunciated to these 71 powerful men. They said, in the end, we've got to obey God rather than you. It's amazing courage, actually. And it's obviously rooted in those first two, but it, in the end, works out in obeying God when you know what God said, everybody might think you're stupid to keep yourself sexually pure in modern Britain. But you know it's the right thing to do, so you do it. You obey God, you don't compromise, you don't jump into bed with people, you don't do... You know what God said. Now that can apply to a myriad of different things. That's just one example off the top of my head. But there are things you know God said to do, and there's many things we know, and we're going to do them. And we've got to obey God rather than men. And one of them actually is to share our faith. But that's by the way. But but there's loads of things. Now I want to add a little quick rider on this. Look at verse 20. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. Because some of you, particularly if you've been around for years in Christian things, will say, oh, that could get legalistic, John. Well, it wasn't legalistic, this obedience to God, because it was rooted not in some rules or list of rules or written code. It was rooted in their own experience and relationship. That's what it was rooted in. It was rooted in their relationship with God and with Jesus and their own experience of him. So it's not, we have got to obey God because he told us very clearly and it's written here very clearly, we must do this, we can't do what you... It's not that. It's about, we can't help it. We know him. He's alive. You can't tell us not to tell people he's alive. It's real. There is a God. There is a Saviour. There is a Jesus. There is a Holy Spirit. You can speak in tongues. You can lay hands on the sick. You can be stupid for Jesus, idiotes for Jesus. And you can't help it. You're not doing it deliberately. You're not doing it legalistically. John has told me to be an idiot. No. You just, you just do it because you know him. So, yes, it is obeying God. And, yes, it is taking notice of what he's written. It's not ignoring this but it is also experiencing it. This was experiential. There's experience running all the way through this. I've told you before, 
the apostles were experiential Trinitarians. That's how they got to the doctrine. They knew the Holy Spirit was God. They knew the Son was God. And they knew God was God. And they knew there was one God. Now, this is a sort of example of it. They, they, they were filled with the Spirit. They knew Jesus. They knew that God had clearly brought things to their minds. They got to do. And they knew they were baptized in the whole thing. They were immersed in the Holy Spirit. They were immersed in Jesus and they wanted to obey God. That was their heart's desire. God, I want to obey you. Do you go into 2009 thinking, God, I want to obey you. Rooted in knowing he's real. Rooted in knowing he loves you. Rooted in knowing he's your father. Say, God, help me to obey you. I mean, I struggle to know always what to do. I don't feel I've always obeyed God. I'm doing business with God myself this week. Saying, God, I'm sorry, I feel I've missed it there. I've missed it there. But I find that myself coming back again and again. But I love you, Lord, and you know I want to obey you. You know my heart is to do what you want in my life. You can't do this as a sort of nod. Oh, that's a nice idea. You've got to get on your knees. You've got to, and I was lying on the carpet this week. I wasn't even on my knees. I'm just praying. Now, I'm not a hero. I'm only telling you that so that you know I mean this. I mean, I'm not doing it to boast. In fact, I should do that a lot more than I do. So please don't misunderstand me. But you do, when I'm preparing this, I'm finding God pulling me back again and again. I want to be filled with the Spirit. I want Lord Jesus to spend more time with you. I can't do it without that. And I need to know your will because when I know it, I will do it, Lord. Now that is how you live not intimidated by fear of man. And it's the only possible way to do it. You can't do it by psyching yourself up. Because our culture is full of fear of man. In fact, the whole thing is riddled with it. What people think of you, what you wear, what you look like, what you say. Oh, don't you know that? Ooh, you, haven't, you haven't clicked into the latest thing. You know, the whole thing is just a, a, like a, a huge, huge mesh of, of what people think of you. Now, it's not you're going to suddenly be weird. But you might be sometimes. I can't guarantee you won't be weird. But that's not the point. The point is you're not motivated, but you're drawing on the Holy Spirit. You're knowing Jesus as your friend, your Lord, your Saviour. You're saying, God, my heart is to obey you wherever I can. Do you agree? Do you want to live like that? If you want to live like that, stand up. If you don't, don't stand up. I don't mean that nastily. I don't mean it aggressively. Because I want to pray for you. If you want to live like that, I want to pray for you. Now, one of the reasons you might not stand up is because, frankly, you think, well, I don't even know if I know God. So it's a perfectly understandable thing not to stand up. I'm not even going to sort of half-notice you, really. You know, I'm not looking to be heavy on you. I just want, if you haven't stood up and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, I want you to know you can know him today. And you can come to a living knowledge of Jesus. He's alive and he wants to be in your life through his Spirit. And if you want to know more, please talk to me or someone else you might know in the church immediately afterwards and we'll help you to just understand what you'd need to do. Because it's only a prayer away. But for most of us who do know him, and maybe most of us have stood, I want to pray, and I want you to sort of be praying for yourself, if you know what I mean. I want you to have your, your heart open, maybe even your hands open to him. That's not a bad thing. It's symbolic, really, of being open. Hands thing isn't a sort of some new religious tradition. It's a, it's a biblical way of praying, actually, if you read the Bible carefully. But it, it's symbolic of being open to God and just, just hands open to him. So you certainly open your hands up to God. But open your heart. Open your heart. Lord, we stand before you at the beginning of a new year. And Lord Jesus, we don't want to be intimidated. We don't want to be scared of telling people the good, good news of your salvation that is available to them. Lord, we don't want to be scared of each other. We don't want to be scared of being free to praise you and worship you. Being free to be very ordinary and very unschooled sometimes. We don't want to be scared of that, Lord. We don't want to be scared of seeming naive or gullible or whatever we think we might seem. Please, Lord, we just stand before you. We say, come, Holy Spirit. Now you pray for yourself as well. Spirit of God, fill us anew.
Lord, fill us. We can't do it, Lord, just on our own willpower. We're not brave enough. We're not clever enough. Fill us afresh, dear Holy Spirit. Come, Lord. Lord Jesus, we say we want to spend more time with you. Help my brothers and sisters to do that, not, in a, not always in a diary way, but in a daily way, just to talk to you when they're at work, when they're driving, when they're cleaning the house, when they're buying the shopping, when they're taking the kids to school, Lord. I pray that we'll, we'll just know an engagement with you all through our lives. You're with us and we're, we're talking to you. We spend lots of time with you. And Lord, as we stand before you, we say we want to obey you. Oh, Jesus, help us. Father, we want to obey you. Father, I'm so tired of our own agendas. I'm so tired of our own fear of what may or may not happen. We want to be radical in our obedience to you. Father God, we say it. Help us, Lord. Fill us with your spirit. Because we want to be, Lord, fearful of only one person, you. Free of all other fear. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us.